I just thought like doing more good stuff was better. So like I meditated, I did yoga, I did Tai Chi. I rode my bike usually to and from school. I tried to do my best to you know eat as healthy as I could. Like time was the one resource I didn't have much of. And the solution for me was that, you know, some of these good things were being less good because they were, I needed some at least amount of free time and some flexibility in my schedule. And, you know, so I cut some of those out. And so I think it, it's always a personal decision, but I'm a, again, like a big believer in too much good is no good. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven everything the body needs control your mind welcome to the body mind empowerment podcast i'm a host seem lund and our guest today is dr gregory kelly dr greg is a naturopathic physician and former editor of the journal alternative medicine review he's also a lead product formulator at neurohacker collective neurohacker collective offers the highest quality nootropics on the market you might have heard of their qualia mind which is full of amazing compounds for improved cognition, focus, brain plasticity, and stress resilience. It's not full of a bunch of caffeine and stimulants, but it includes many different adaptogens and ingredients that maintain sustained concentration for hours. I don't use any other nootropics, but I do sometimes take quality of mind if I want to get something important done or have a cognitively more demanding task. I've even taken it before working out, and there's a noticeable difference in my ability to push off fatigue and just stay in the right zone for the entire workout. You can get a 15% discount of all the amazing supplements from Neurohacker Collective if you use the code SEAM at neurohacker.com. They have Qualia Life, which is their NAD precursor supplement, and Qualia Sleep for a sleep supplement that doesn't contain melatonin. Head over to neurohacker.com and a 15% discount code is SIEM, S-I-I-M. Dr. Greg, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be on. Yeah, I'm also uh, glad to talk with you. And uh, you have a pretty interesting background and a pretty exciting job, as I would imagine. So can you talk a little bit about your background? Like, how did you become an ND? And uh, when did you start working with uh, Neurohacker? So my, my background is literally all over the place. I started out in engineering and as an officer in the U.S. Navy and got out at the tail end of 89. So um, I think the end of August in 89. And at that time period, I was had been planning my last year in the Navy for when I got out to be somewhat of a gypsy to just get rid of everything except what would be in a backpack and just, you know, travel to different places. And in order to do that, it had occurred to me that I really needed to be able to do great self care. So I'd started to study herbs, acupuncture, I'd already been very interested in diet and exercise. So that really was, um, I guess, my intro to both naturopathic medicine and um, what ultimately we'd call biohacking was a selfish desire to be able to take care of myself you know, outside of the medical system. And then um, you know, after I did that, I ended up doing a master's degree in what would, I guess the closest way to describe it would be nutritional anthropology hmm. at the University of Hawaii. And during that time, you know, my, in my continued efforts to get smarter about natural medicine, I met naturopaths. I'd never even heard of the profession prior to that. And so in 93, I packed up, left. I was living in Hawaii at that point and um, moved back to the mainland in the U.S. and um, did my degree in naturopathic medicine. So. Mm, well, yeah, that's, that's really interesting and like all over the place. Uh, so funny enough, like I also did... Like I have a degree in uh, anthropology, which is more like cultural anthropology, but yeah, similar fields. 
yeah, I took some classes in that, um, economic anthropology, but um, my emphasis was definitely the nutrition and medical anthropology classes. And that was what um, my final paper was on. Mm -hmm. And uh, when did you join uh, Neurohacker Collective? I've been with Neurohacker about two years and maybe three months at this point. So um, relatively new, but Neurohackers were really new as well. They've only been up and going for about four and a half years. So at this point, it feels like I'm a pseudo old timer at Neurohacker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine like a lot of people have heard about, you know, biohacking and uh, body hacking or something, but what is like neurohacking? Uh, what's like the main idea behind that? So the idea for the name was really a um, portmanteau, like a combining of the idea of neuroscience and biohacking. So really specifically, um, the initial goal of Neurohacker Collective was, um, you know, essentially biohacking the brain. Mm -hmm. So um, we've, we've moved past that in the years since our first product was launched and our, you know, initial idea of starting up. I think we're moving towards rebranding the, the company and all our products as Qualia, since it seems like more people tend to know us as the Qualia people than as Neurohacker Collective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh... I've also uh, tried your uh, Qualia uh, supplements and yeah, they're really good, high quality. And they're not like this uh, crazy amounts of random uh, stimulants and uh, caffeine and nootropics put into a bottle. They're more like a very specifically, uh, you know, created for just optimizing the cognition and uh, mental functioning. Yeah, I'm, I've never been a more is better guy when it comes to anything. I, I mean, I think for most things, there's a Goldilocks zone that you want to be in where you're going to get a good response you know kind of essentially looking for the bowl of soup that's just the right temperature mm -hmm. and one of the things i've seen you know, i've been involved in the the dietary supplement world in the u.s off and on since 95 actually was a um, student rep for a big company here in the u.s called thorn back in um, my last year of naturopathic school and then worked full-time for them when i first graduated but one of the things that's what I, that I routinely see is this idea that if you know some amount of something is good, more of it must be better. Mm -hmm. And in my experience, it's just not how things work in the real world. So you yeah. know, one of the things that appealed to me about joining Neurohacker was that they embraced that same mentality that you know mm -hmm. it's about finding the right range of things to give to people, and then skillfully and thoughtfully combining things that would work well together. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yes, I, some, it's like a weird quality of the human mind that we think that more is always better. And uh, yeah, we don't um, acknowledge that sometimes like this is more and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, I think um, like it's, it's really interesting because a lot of my friends in, in most things would be more is better. You know, it, it's um, one of my favorite things about going to Europe on vacation, I usually go every year this year. I, I don't think they're going to let people from the U S <laughs> yeah. visit, but um, you know, I, I love going to Southern Spain and all the coffee drinks are really small size, but the quality is amazing. We're here. Like people pretty much don't care as much about the quality. They just want a big serving size of it. Mm. So, um, you know, so it's an interesting thing. I think, um, Personally, one of the mistakes I made when I was in the Navy, um, I had great motivation to exercise back then um, in my, you know, so say 22 to 28 or so were my years in the Navy. 
And as hard as that life was, which it was, it was brutal from sleep deprivation, shift work, you know, demanding um, high pressure job. Um, you know, I would work out pretty much five or six days a week in the gym, hour and a half, probably on average. And despite all that time and, you know, obviously effort, I just didn't really gain any muscle. You know, I felt like I was always treading water. And part of that was the life, the, you know, the background lifestyle, the sleep deprivation and stress aren't, you know, particularly conducive to growing muscle tissue. Mm -hmm. But the other mistake I made was my thought process at the time was that my muscles would get bigger because of doing more. And the piece I was really missing is it's that, like, it's doing the right amount to trigger yeah. growth, but then having the recovery. Mm-hmm. And I think we underappreciate, you know, that we, we often need relatively small amount of stimulus to produce that trigger for adaptation. And then the other key piece we need is the time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think as I've, um, you know, got into naturopathic school around um, age 30, by then I'd got a little wiser about those things. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. I agree with you. And uh, yeah, this like the they say the poison in, is in the dose, and like the growth or something uh, that, that's stimulating is also in the dose. So if it's too much, uh, then it's not going to be uh, the, there's not enough time for recovery. But if it's too little, then there's not enough uh, reason to adapt and uh, stimulate. So there's, yeah, there's these Goldilocks uh, for everything. Right. So one of the I, I tend to break. Um, you know, herbs, supplements into two categories, things that are at least within the range that you'd usually take them as dose dependent, meaning that, you know, as the dose goes up, you're probably going to get a, a bigger effect. And then other things that would be more hermetic or adaptational, right? Where as the dose goes up, you're going to, um, you know, typically get a decreasing benefit. But even what I've seen in the first group, you know, the things that are usually thought of as dose dependent, oftentimes they follow that 80-20 rule or even more extreme, like a 90-10 or 95-5, where almost all the benefits accrue at a much lower dose than people routinely do. And the, you know, all the extra dose that they're taking and spending money on is essentially chasing marginal or fringe benefits, if any. Mm. Yeah, and I would imagine that that applies especially to supplements and uh, different kinds of ingredients where, you know, there's a lot of maybe overlap between different kinds of ingredients as, as well as, uh, yeah, like you reach or like oh, sometimes they're underdosed, whereas other times they're too overdosed. So you're kind of wasting money. <laughs> right. So you're like for me, what I look for, like I love studies that compare different doses because those give you a sense of, you know, did doubling or tripling or making the dose four times higher produce double, triple, or four times the benefit. And almost never do I see that. What I routinely see is doubling, tripling the dose may add like five or 10% more benefit, Mm -hmm. right? So when you see that, you know that you're capturing most of the benefits at this lower dose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like even, even, and then you also have to take into account like many other, uh, uh, like variables or the fundamentals like i think most supplements are not going to work if your sleep sucks or if you're not <laughs> eating a good diet or you're uh yeah like too stressed out and that sort of thing so you have to kind of still fix the fundamentals and then use the supplementation to like either fix some of the loopholes or just get uh, additional age or extra benefit that you wouldn't get otherwise 
Absolutely. I, I, I tend to think of um, like supplements to me are, are exactly what the word means, right? They're filling the holes or the gaps in a good diet or, you know, in the case of um, polyphenols, that like the category of, you know, essentially plant compounds that would include resveratrol and quercetin and, you know, a whole range of other um, things that are fairly well used in the biohacker space. Those, um, so do you know how, like, how plants make polyphenols? Has that ever come up on your show? Uh, yeah, yeah, we do talk about it. Yeah, so the, the, they're basically like plant stress molecules. So like mm. one of my, um, the first studies I saw on it was capsaicin. So capsaicin's the thing that gives the hot peppers that really, you know, that biting spiciness, that hot taste. And um, this was a, like, to me, a cool study just showing how plants adapt. So capsaicin, what they found is in, um, when there was plants nearby that were being in, attacked by insects, I think it was aphids was the exact insect, the other chili plants in that area would make peppers that were a lot more spicy. The capsaicin mm. content would go up, right? It was mm -hmm. essentially their adaptation. So a lot of what are considered these secondary metabolites in plants and secondary metabolites are anything that would be like the non, you know, vitamin, mineral, like, you know, things without like a clear human um, role tend to be things that they make in response to stress in their environment. So they essentially act to toughen up the plant. Mm -hmm. And what seems to be the case at a, you know, like at a genetic level, almost for humans or an epigenetic level, is when we eat those things, it toughens up our cells. It essentially, the, the idea is called xenohormensis. But um, the idea is that by eating things in our environment that are getting, you know, tougher to prepare for more stressful things, it forecast to our cells that they need to toughen themselves up as well. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that I think that, you know, that interesting is polyphenol intake in plants. Um, if a plant is grown in a non-stressed environment, which would be generally speaking, how most you know, plants are raised now compared mm -hmm. to their wild ancestors, they don't need to be as tough. So they wouldn't make as many polyphenols. So even if we ate the same like say plant-based diet as our ancestors, we'd be getting far fewer of these you know, important secondary metabolites. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's so true that like um, a tomato grown in a greenhouse uh, without any exposure to the elements uh, is, uh, it has less of these stress molecules inside there. And uh, therefore, you know, it has probably less of a health benefit on your body as well uh, compared to something right. that is more exposed to like different kinds of, you know, parasites or uh, the rain and the cold and that sort of thing. Yeah, high temperature sunlight. Yeah, so all those things, you know, would change the content like, you know, um, something like resveratrol or quercetin. Those molecules always tend to concentrate where the, um, the product meets the environment. So mm -hmm. for grapes, more resveratrol is going to be in the skin than in the, the flesh of the fruit. Um, you always see it concentrate in seeds, right? Because they have to be hardy to survive. Mm -hmm. um, onions, quercetin concentrates in all of the layers of an onion that you peel away and throw away. Yeah. Um, and in the roots, right? Because those are where it has to be the toughest. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, so to me, polyphenols then become something that is in general a hole that most people need to get filled in in their diet just because mm -hmm. it's hard to eat in a way that would get us anywhere near what our ancestors got for it, both quantity and diversity of mm -hmm. that category of, of plant metabolites. Yeah. And I also feel that 
because uh, like the most foods are deficient of these uh, stress compounds, then the people there yeah, may lack some of that resilience as well. And uh, they may they may only get like the GMOs. <laughs> They're getting all the negative <laughs> things from the from these uh, vegetables and those things. They get all the pesticides and the GMOs, but they don't get any of the beneficial uh, compounds. And they they also like it's also re- reduced in um, you know micronutrients and vitamins and other things that are in like more organic and uh, wild grown uh, produce. Absolutely. Uh, so so uh, I think just loop, looping around. So when I think of um, supplements it's you know um, a core thing for me at least in things that I choose to take is I want to experience benefits but I also want to make sure that I'm filling in the gaps that would be hard for me to get even if I paid really meticulous attention to my diet mm-hmm. yeah and I would, I would imagine that um, the source of the ingredient uh, would also affect like the quality of the supplement like if you are oh, absolutely like using using uh, polyphenol supplements uh, and if the the ingredients, or for example, the capsaicin, it's uh, coming from uh, you know like like those uh, unstressed uh, compound or the plants and uh, these um, you know greenhouse uh, plants, then it would have like a less of a effect as well on the body itself compared to something that is uh, sourced from more of uh, you know a natural place or more like you know stressed out place. Yeah, I, I, so one of the things that at least for um, we just. Um, very recently launched a, a product called Qualia Night, and two of the ingredients are actually from um, from Southern Europe. One is an olive extract, and one is a, a grape extract. But um, in part, I liked those because they'd been um, I'd found d- data on both of those individual extracts for sleep. But I also liked that you know they're grown in outdoor conditions, and you know those are, are both high in polyphenols, but naturally because the plants are being stressed. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, given that we are on the you know topic of stress, uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about you know stress resilience and um, how does it affect the brain and how can we like optimize it? Sure. Um, would it be useful to kind of talk about my model of stress or um, yeah. I, I I tend so um, so the way I would have explained this to patients is. Um, it dates back to a game that existed when I was a kid in the late sixties and it was called, um, the camels, the camel game or last draw. But the, the gist of it was there was uh, a camel, there was two baskets on either side and there was then different colors, like essentially straws, plastic things that you would put in the basket. And each team went back and forth adding straws. And at some point the weight became so much that the back collapsed. So the way I tend to think of stress is exactly like the camel's game. So we all have an ability to carry a certain amount of weight, like different straws is stress. And we all have like, you know, whatever our capacity to carry that is. So that I would call resilience. So to me, the stress game is always about making the back stronger and then removing any straws that we can remove. So I don't, um, I'm not an advocate of needing to clean the bucket out, like mm-hmm. get all, rid of all the straws, but let's figure out what the heaviest ones are and get those out well in advance of, you know, a potential last straw causing the back to break. Right. So that, that would be my, like my framework of how I think about it. And um, I, at one point taught um, classes to a bunch of other doctors on stress and even talked in Australia at a, uh, international symposium once on stress, but um, 
my belief based on both my clinical practice, but also Salier's work and others is the biggest straw tends to be things that would be in the mental emotional category. So they mm. become the most important things to resolve. And, you know, then obviously um, chemical stress, toxicity, um, you know, too much, too little physical stress, too much, um, too little sleep. Like most things that are stressful tend to follow that Goldilocks rule. There's a right amount of it that tends to be advantageous. So it's not a matter of complete avoidance, but we need to be smart about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And uh, it's not like, it's not like that one particular stress can uh, wipe you out. Like it's not that, that the, you know, fluoride in your water is going to break the straw, so to say. It's all the culmination of those things uh, that eventually make the straw break uh, because there's just uh, overbearing uh, amounts of the stressor. So it's not like the one particular stress is bad. It's just that the, the pile on top of each other and uh, your body just... Uh, there's going to be like an imbalance between being able to tolerate the stress or being able to recover from it versus the stimulation or distressor itself or the damage that it causes. Right. So that's exactly how I think of it, that all of these straws are accumulating. What tends to happen when someone, um, you know, gets um, like sick with a stress-induced illness is they'll be able to identify that last big straw, the one that caused the back to collapse. But at that point, just fixing that issue is unlikely to, um, to work in terms of restoring health all the way. So, you know, to me, the goal is always to figure out what's a big straw for a person and get those out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some, sometimes there's as little, like I've seen, um, you know, I guess this kind of ties into like the brain piece. So I think the, um, the biggest straws tend to be things that, um, interact with, with um, the self-regulated drives in the part of our brain called the hypothalamus. So that's, that's the control center that regulates appetite, thirst, sex drive, sleep drive, um, hot and cold, the body clocks there as well. So all of those, all of those core things, if, if one of those is out of whack or not being met, that would be a big straw. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, so that would be a goal. But the other thing I see routinely, and I, I use the idea of bandwidth for our brain, like our brain only has so much capacity for almost like RAM on a computer. Um, so if we, we have an old computer, we have 10 different software programs running in the background. We're probably on the verge of causing that computer to crash. Yeah. Um, it, and whatever that new, you know, that new software we open is the final straw, right? That causes that. So bandwidth in the brain seems to run the same way. Like what um, a lot of people I've worked with over the years, they'll consume that bandwidth with a whole bunch of little things, but they're chronically running. You know, it could mm-hmm. be as simple as, you know, should I, you know, I'm unhappy in this job. Should I make a change? And they just kick, kick the can on making that decision, right? It's not bad enough to make it, but there's some bandwidth churning away in the background thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And so to me, making decisions closes those things down. It's like closing a software program. So like mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of coaching people to make decisions for things that they're ruminating about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so true. The 
the uh, oh, oh, like yeah the, the, this, these big big things uh, or the small things they can like there's like small poison dripping in a way <laughs> that are dripping sl- the poison slowly and you're bleeding out very slowly and uh, once you maybe you know once you try to change uh, then it's going to be pretty hard and the same applies to like habits and those things things as well like if you have the, a bad habit of like smoking or something drinking then uh, you may not notice it for maybe like a first few years but after you know decades then it's too late almost that you're gonna have cancer and uh, you're gonna have like a bad habit where you're like addicted to the substance and then it's actually more harmful for you or it's harder for you to uh, break that habit because you're very like attached to the thing yeah yeah i think um so anyways i guess the the um idea for me is where like stress plays into the brain is a lot of that idea of bandwidth is where the, the, those two kind of analogies meet up for me. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I, I, do you ever, have you ever heard of a NPR podcast called the hidden brain? Uh, I think I've seen it, but I don't recall uh, listening. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really well done one. And, um, one of their episodes probably a year and a half ago actually had to do with what I would think of as this idea of bandwidth. And so there was three different things they, they talked about because NPR is really good at doing the human interest aspect of things. So the first one was this um, female and she was a um, well on her path to becoming a medical doctor. I I don't know if it was during internship or residency, Um, but, and she had been a type A personality, you know, the class valedictorian type of, person that was always straight A's, super hardworking. Um, And she essentially almost, um, you know, um, disengaged from medical school. She um, had taxed her what would be time. Like she just had allowed no free time. And at some point her brain just almost melted down because of that. Hmm. The next story they talked about had to do with poverty. And what they found with people that are poor, and this goes back to that hypothalamus, like a basic survival um, things, you know, poverty would impact that tremendously, is that they tend to make poor choices when they do get money. Um, and then the last thing was um, something called the Minnesota Starvation Study, which was a World War II study here in the U.S., where they had conscientious objectors um, you essentially go on a calorie restricted diet for a prolonged period of time because they wanted to see what would um, one what, what would happen physiologically and then they wanted to also understand how to refeed those people so that they would be better able to help the prisoners of war after the um, the war ended and what they found is that those people's uh, bandwidth their brain got consumed with thinking about food so if they mm-hmm. watched a movie they couldn't really enjoy the movie they just saw the food scenes they started to read cookbooks and started to read magazines that had pictures of food. And you see that same thing happen even in the TV show Survivor here in the U.S., where you know, within a, a week of being on um, Survivor and unable to eat enough food every day, their brains get very consumed with thinking about food. So mm-hmm. that's the idea of bandwidth, right? Like all your bandwidth's getting consumed because this basic fundamental need's not met. And so... Um, you know, I think in the biohacker world, rarely would you see that, right? We're, we're pretty good at making sure that we don't consume it with, with a big thing like that. But what I do see is then, you know, quite often it'll get chunked down, like our, our capacity will be used up 
because we're running all these other, you know, background programs, some of which are beneficial and some which might, you know, benefit us more by closing down. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how would you like go about uh, fixing that or preventing that? Would you like, fo- can you like increase the bandwidth or uh, do you get better at, uh, you know, closing those programs down or how do you, you know, <laughs> circumvent that? So I, I, to me, it's exactly like that camel's back. So like, I, just like I think you can make the, the back more resilient for, to carry more straws, I think we can, um, in essence, with nutrition and other things, probably make the bandwidth bigger. At least that would be my story. Um, and then I think we can remove straws, right? We can shut down things. So I know for me, during naturopathic school, so this was you know, in the, the years right after my master's degree, a um, couple of years post Navy, um, I just thought like doing more good stuff was better. So like I meditated, I did yoga, I did Tai Chi, I rode my bike usually to and from school. I tried to do my best to you know eat as healthy as I could, and so I, I had all these like what I would say good habits, right? That I'd made into habits, and you know then I had a super busy life because I was in school full-time. I had two part-time jobs. And so, you know, similar to that doctor that I mentioned in the um, NPR story, the hidden brain story, like time was the one resource I didn't have much of. And it got to a point, I remember waking up one morning and just feeling like, I don't even want to get out of bed today. I just have so many good things that I have to do. I don't even know where to start. Like I I just kind of hit my wall there. Mm-hmm. And the solution for me was that, you know, some of these good things were being less good because they were, I needed some, at least amount of free time, you know, some flexibility in my schedule. And, you know, so I cut some of those out. And so I think it, it's always a personal decision, but I'm a, again, like a big believer in too much good is no good. And, you know, what I saw with patients is that quite frequently they would embrace a whole bunch of change and go like gangbusters and four to six weeks later they would you know all of those things would fall off the table that mm. like they were just trying to do too much too quickly so mm. I, i'm a, a big fan of a more measured approach but also um, finding out what the highest value things someone is doing or the, the highest value things someone could be doing and making sure we keep those in the picture um there was an american author back in the 90s stephen covey that one of his sayings was the enemy of the best is the good. So, you know, find those best things and get rid of the good. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree that sometimes the best or the most effective thing to do is to actually, you know, as, you know, subtract or remove and uh, take, get rid of things because uh, that kind of frees up a lot of space and uh, puts like less, uh, less stress on yourself and uh, takes away the pressure. Yep, absolutely. And then I think the way that we can improve our bandwidth, obviously, you know, sleep, diet, the big things like that. But it's one of the things I've seen with nootropics, like a well, you know, like a stack that works well for someone seems to really fundamentally improve their bandwidth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And uh, what kind of uh, nootropics or what kind of compounds? Well, I I think... um, you know, the, the things I'm a, like, I'm a big fan of low doses of caffeine. And so like, to me, a good nootropic dose of caffeine is somewhere 50 to maybe 200 milligrams a day. Beyond that, it's probably you've maxed out any nootropic effect you're going to get. Um, I, I love the stack of that with L-theanine or theanine. I know people pronounce it differently, but I, that 
that combo plays really well for most people. Um, like some kind of a choline that can readily get into the brain, like alpha GPC or the citicoline stack really well with those two other things. And then there's quite a few things that fall into the um, herb world that are great nootropics. So Bacopa is one that I'm a big fan of as an example. Um, but, you know, there's just so many. So that the key thing is figuring out how to you know build a stack that's going to support um, what I think of as like higher brain functions. So executive functions primarily, and then things like that I um, dump in the social cognition world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the caffeine plus uh, L-theanine uh, combo is pretty popular and a lot of people know about it. And it's also one of the most effective ones. So that, you know, sometimes people do get like overstimulated from caffeine, but the L-theanine is just great for, you know, blunting that response and smoothing it out. Absolutely. I think um, like the way I tend to think of um, brain function is a pyramid and like the base is important, right? If you don't have the base, you know, in place, you just can't get to the higher levels of the pyramid. And um, that base level is like we would say vigilance in neuroscience, but basically being alert and awake. So caffeine does a great job at that. Um, but after you built that base, more caffeine doesn't get you higher up the pyramid. If that makes sense. Yeah. But theanine added on tends to get um, play well with caffeine to get to that next level up, which is like, you know, attention, focus, concentration, ability to not be, you know, uh, distracted, you know, to keep your um, uh, ability to um, stay focused on the task. So that combination to me solidly will usually get you into that second level of the pyramid, but on its own is unlikely to get you higher up the pyramid, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so higher up, then you get into, you know, executive functions, you know, with working memory via one of the main things they tend to study. So, you know, I, I know when I look at um, studies on nootropics, I'm always, um, you know, looking for things that improve working memory. Mm -hmm those become then super valuable to add on to the stack. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at um, the uh, Qualia Mind uh, ingredient list and you have you know, a bunch of uh, different kinds of uh, ingredients. Like you have like a different, uh, these polyphenols that we talked about from various sources, uh, as well as like um, some antioxidants from uh, vitamin C in Oh, I, I think I saw N-acetylcysteine, but I don't think it's there. <laughs> but yeah, like, we use that. Yeah, we use N-acetylcysteine in a few things, but not in quality of mind. Yeah, uh, but you also have you know B vitamins, which are for the nerve functioning, and uh, yeah, taurine, L-theanine, uh, carnitine, and yeah, a bunch of different compounds that I believe yeah. Yeah, do stack up with uh, like the additional benefits of you know caffeine. You know, right? Because like what, um, when we put quality together, we really had an eye on supporting dopamine, choline, like acetylcholine signaling, um, as, as two of the most important pathways. So we, we have what I would think of as the building blocks for those molecules. So things like, um, N-acetyl, uh, tyrosine and D-alphenylalanine that, which are precursors to, um, the dopamine pathway. We also have Mucuna, which is a Ayurvedic, um, plant that is a natural source of L-DOPA. So another precursor for that. We've got um, both alpha GPC and citicoline, which are um, 
choline donors that cross the blood brain barrier, but come in different places on like a circular loop called the Kennedy pathway. So like one of the things that we always try to understand is the whole pathway that both makes and recycles something. And then our goal is to support that pathway in multiple places. Uh, the analogy that I would tend to use is that what you often see is instead of like um, that this full pathway approach, people will give high amounts of something at one point in the pathway and then won't support the enzymes that will move it further along. And to me, that creates at least a real possibility for a metabolic traffic jam, right? Because ultimately it's the enzymes that let things flow through. So what we'll tend to do is give lower amounts spread through the pathway and then find, you know, and if this is often polyphenols, things that support the enzymes in between. Yeah, uh, I've seen, like a lot of people see, there's, uh, you know, acetylcholine and choline specifically in uh, nootropics and uh, different supplements. So why is, it, why, is it, why is it important for the brain and the cognition? So acetylcholine is um, involved in everything from like muscle function. Acetylcholine is very important in like that brain muscle connection. Um, but it's in, an important molecule in long-term memory and also in... Um, what I would think of is the accuracy piece of attention. So one of the things that when you stack a good choline source with things like um, caffeine in studies, you'll see accuracy of reactions go up. So caffeine is really good for speed of reactions, but it, and it can make us think that we're doing better, but caffeine can actually hurt accuracy if we take too much, where choline tends to moderate that. So that stack tends to improve both speed and accuracy. Mm -hmm. And then right. choline tends to also get into the higher levels of the pyramid, learning, memory, executive functions, where caffeine on its own, not so much. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, what about the B vitamins? What are their roles? So the, the B vitamins are very important. Um, well, I, different B vitamins for different things, but um, like B6 as an example, is involved in, uh, as a cofactor. Uh, coenzymes specifically in the different enzymes that make neurotransmitters. So B6 in general, you can tend to think of as if, if a amino acid has to be made into some, some other molecule, there's a pretty good chance B6 is going to be involved somewhere. You know, so um, if you take L-tryptophan, the pathway that makes it ultimately into melatonin, well, B6 is involved. If you take, say, tyrosine to get it into dopamine, B6 is going to be in that pathway. So B6 is, in general, something that's in, involved in building molecules from amino acids. Now, niacinamide is in it more for its role in producing NAD. Um, mm -hmm. So that would be like a completely different reason. And um, B12 is in there. Um, because of the big role that plays in methylation processes and the methylation cycle, SAMe again plays a role in a lot of these neurotransmitters. So the, the different B vitamins are in there for you know each for its unique reason, but in general they're all in there because they uh, work in the enzymes that make these different brain pathways function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about like? We, we, we've been talking about like the micronutrients and uh, vitamins, but what about like the macronutrients in terms of, you know, proteins, carbs, fats, uh, how, do, how do those uh, affect uh, brain functioning and like cognition or stress uh, resilience? 
I think, um, so when I was in practice, I was, um, I spent my first about three years working in Dr. Diadamo's practice, seeing all the new patients. So Diadamo is, the, um, he's a naturopath, actually a second generation naturopath. And his, his dad was one of the old time naturopaths when I went to school that was, um, you know, had essentially rebirthed my profession. But Diadamo was probably um, best known as the author of Eat Right for Your Type, so the blood type diet. And that, that came out in, I want to say either 96, maybe it was just the beginning of 97, but um, just before he recruited me to work for him. So we viewed all the patients that we saw through that lens of um, blood type. And one of his ideas, and he got this from his dad and all his dad's observations over you know, dozens of, more. Well, I mean, I think at that point, close to four decades of practice was the... Um, different blood types tended to do better and worse with different diets. So like um, in a general sense, what we would think of maybe as close to a paleo diet today would have been something that we recommended for O's back then, you know, more plant-based diet. So something more akin to the Mediterranean diet, we would have generally recommended something along or close to that for A's. And while you know, occasionally I would see a blood typo that was a, a vegetarian or, you know, maybe even a stricter vegan and it was working for them. Usually that only um, was in the context of them doing a lot of supplementation to round out the edges where O's on a paleo diet tended to do much better. So that's, that would be kind of one um, filter for individualizing. I think there's obviously many more that you could use and that Diadamo uses now. So I guess in general, my thought is that um, there, there isn't one diet algorithm that's going to work for everyone, right? Mm -hmm. like, like we each have to find our own. Blood types a really useful starting place for a lot of people. That was my experience. And especially if their immune system was more um, was weaker or failing them, then blood type ended up, you know, at least what I saw when I was in practice being an awesome place to start. So mm. yeah, I think we just have to be careful to, um, and not assume that, you know, we hear about this great diet listening to your podcast or one of the other biohacker podcasts. Well, that's great. It may work really well for us, but it may not be a fit for us as well. And the other thing that, um, one of my nutrition teachers said that has always stayed with me was, um, essentially the idea that there can be a big difference in a, a new diet that takes someone from being unhealthy and gets them back to healthy mm -hmm. and then a diet that keeps them at healthy. So yeah. the kind of the, the gist of it was don't get locked into the, you know, like any diet as something that's that if I go on this today, it's going to work for me forever because his experience and he'd been practicing again, like, you know, a couple of decades at that point was that was rare that, um, you know, so don't get attached to these diets like in a dogmatic way. Really focus on the results it's producing and then be flexible and willing to change. So I, I love when I hear people that will seasonally do keto, right? That they'll mm -hmm. decide, okay, I'm going to do like a more keto focused diet over the winter, but you know, not stick to that year round. Or, you know, because I, I think our physiology, well, I know our physiology changes dramatically seasonally. We, we all have to an extent like hibernator legacy, right? We have a few genes that are shared with hibernating animals. And 
while we're not hibernatory, things like cholesterol and blood sugar, and you know, we could list dozens of other things in physiology, these things all change seasonally. So mm -hmm. like what is ideal for us in the summer is very unlikely to be in the winter and vice versa. So anyways, mm -hmm. I think to me, I guess getting back to it, I think like find a diet that at least is sound in principle, right? You're eating mostly whole foods, you know, like the smart people that you've listened to can give it a thumbs up. Like this is, you know, worked for me and quite a bit of the people I coach and then just be willing to, um, to, be flexible, right? To understand like, okay, this may work for me great for four or five months, but maybe not for four or five years. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good advice. And uh, I agree yeah, that there are like a wide range of diets people can thrive on, uh, but there are like some fundamentals or some principles that everyone should keep in mind, like yeah, eating primarily whole foods, uh, getting all of your like essential micronutrients and uh, vitamins, and uh, then yeah, like maintaining uh, you know, proper calorie balance, so to say, so that you wouldn't be uh, like uh, over consuming too many calories and uh, becoming uh, insulin resistant as a, as a result of that. And uh, yeah, if you, if, you follow, if you follow those principles, then yeah, you can, you can succeed on uh, any kind of that. And yeah, you have to find out like what works uh, best for you and you, perhaps like some genetic factors, uh, but yeah, primarily like yeah, what's most sustainable for you. Yeah, so I, like, I, to me, I guess that, like going back to that, what we touched on earlier, right? Like I'm a quality person. So, you know, like I, I do, um, I think reasonably well with yogurt, but I try to buy the best yogurt I can buy, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, and to me, like a, a good quality yogurt is going to taste sour, right? Because mm -hmm. the, like what ends up happening, at least here in the U S is they don't ferment yogurts very long because they know the average palate doesn't like sour things. Mm -hmm. So like if it, if it doesn't taste sour, which like I know, you know, in Southern um, France, as an example, the yogurts I've have always taste sour. And if it doesn't taste sour, it wasn't fermented long enough to get as much benefits as had it been fermented longer. You know, then it, obviously it's important, the quality of the, you know, the, the milk that the yogurt was made from. And so there's lots of things that go into quality, but to me, those are fruitful places to start. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I, um, like, I, rather than, like how much, or this is good or that this is bad. My emphasis is like, let's make, you know, more and more decisions of high quality. So like when I saw you um, interview Dave Asprey recently and him talking about fats, like to me, that was an awesome discussion because the whole, you know, emphasis was on, you know, like the, the quality of your fats, right? Like you want to, especially with fats, I would say, uh, make sure that you're doing a really good job focusing on the quality. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 true. Uh, but uh, what about these uh, adaptogens? Uh, how can they be beneficial, and what kind of effect do they have? So I think of adaptogens as akin to exercise. So like I, I think of, um, you know, so first I'm a huge fan of adaptogens, and um, and I tend to think there'd be a classic thing that has that adaptational or hermetic type of effect, right? So we want to find the Goldilocks zone for those types of things. So um, whatever the adaptogen in is to me, I would um, always without question tend to think, okay, there's probably an amount that's going to be good or like, you know, the bowl of soup that's just right. But this is something that I want to be even more careful with not taking too much. And then in general with adaptogens, just like with exercise, I think it's a good idea to you know, obviously not train every day. Like I did when I was in the Navy, mm -hmm. 
close to every day, but then take a week off periodically to deload, right? To essentially let your muscles have a, a longer time to recover. So I, I think like my, um, like my algorithm for adaptogens is more is not better and yeah. taking periodic deloading times from them. And then my personal experience is that works great for most people. And the, the, the deloading doesn't have to be taking a month off. It can just be taking a week off like you would um, from weight training and it tends to reset this system. So like I love Shizandra as an example, as an adaptogen, which um, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but the, the biohackers from Finland that you had on your YouTube channel recently, yeah. I know they, they mentioned, you know, really liking Shizandra. So that's another one. Like I love Shizandra, right? They, um, and I, I think they mentioned this, right? It's famous for having all five tastes. So Shizandra is interesting because if you look on um, PubMed, like the, the medical database, you're not going to find much for human studies because almost all the adaptogen research was done in Russia, you know, and none of it's available on Medline. So you have to find, you know, people that have looked at all of those Russian studies and tried to, you know, tie them or bring them all together into a review. And when you read those articles, it's just amazing what mm -hmm. some of the things that Shizandra did. But again, like a, a classic thing is Shizandra was not a more is better. It was, you know, definitely a zone where it tended to work best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there has to be uh, like a reason why you would take something uh, that applies to any supplement or any routine and any uh, adaptogen. So these adaptogens just kind of have like a different effect and you have to know what's the purpose, but because they can also like offset some other goal that you may have. So for example, like, um, you know, certain adaptogens can also blunt the uh, hormesis effect from uh, exercise, so to say, so that you would uh, you you would uh, shut down like some of the inflammation that is also needed for muscle growth, and you kind of defeat the whole whole purpose of exercise almost. <laughs> that if you combine like a bunch of antioxidants or these adaptogens, uh, you know, after a workout, for example, uh, whereas uh, you would you would maybe benefit from taking them if you have a like rest day or if you're trying to yeah like fix some sort of uh, inflammation in your body and that sort of thing. Well, I've seen that that issue with um, with antioxidants and, and classic antioxidants, vitamin C, vitamin E, as an example, were two of the things that were studied in the, the work that you know looked at um, essentially blunting the ability to create the inflammation you needed to then repair and remodel. Um, I, I haven't seen it with adaptogens, honestly, and like um, you know, sometimes adaptogens won't live up to their reputation for enhancing exercise performance. But in terms of being concerned about them with exercise, um, it, it wouldn't rank as high for me as doing like, you know, a big dose of vitamin C before a workout. Mm. So uh, to me, like, as long as they're like, I would tend to take them a little bit um, away, but like I typically, so um, Neurohacker makes a, a, a two ounce shot. Um, we call it a quality nootropic energy shot, but it's got, uh, it's really more of a, a mental energy product. So it's got um, a few things though that I would think of as adaptogens, though more in a cognitive sense. Um, but it does have American ginseng in it, which um, in a nootropic sense, American ginseng's been studied at this particular, this is a, like a studied extract we use called Cerebus to both enhance working memory and to um, produce calmness, which that's a really cool combination. And when we made that energy shot, one of the things that 
the, a subset of people use quality of mind for was um, pre-workout. And what we would hear um, very routinely was that they felt like they were uh, mentally tougher through their workout when they did the nootropics before. Um, the drawback with qualia is since it's capsules, it typically takes a bit to kick in. So, you know, for me, if I was going to take qualia mind pre-workout, I would really need to take it, you know, 40 minutes before going to the gym. So when I was putting the nootropic energy shot together, what I wanted to do was get something that I could drink. And by the time I got to the gym, which for me is about five miles away, it will already be kicking in. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, allow me to stay mentally strong. So, um, so I guess long story short, one of the things in there would be classically thought of as adaptogen, um, the um, American ginseng as Cereboost. And I have not seen anything detrimental with workouts. Right. With that. And I think, you know, in part, it's stacked, obviously, with other things. In part, the dose is relatively low. And to me, that's the, the key thing, right? Like that, like you had mentioned earlier, the dose makes the poison. So mm -hmm. like, rather than all or none, like this, you know, you know, should or shouldn't be something you do around your workout. It's, you know, what's the dose you're doing? And, you know, does it help my workouts or not? And that energy shot for me, I know I just stay way mentally more checked in when I'm, um, you know, working out, especially lifting heavy weights, if I've done that before my workout. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I do think that, yeah, like the small amounts of them aren't that significant. Um, and yeah, like if you macrodose, yeah, like <laughs> these vitamin C and those things, then it may have an effect, but uh, not if you take it in like a normal, normal dose. Yeah. Uh, what about, uh, what about like the overall aspect of uh, memory and, uh, you know, improving your uh, long-term memory and that sort of thing? So, um, so there's, I would say, you know, both like the choline's we mentioned have been studied for that. Um, again, quite a bit of the um, the herbs, so like bacopa, ginkgo, those. I mean, there's quite a range of things that have been studied for supporting memory. So uh, again, I think it's you know it's one of the. Uh, so I guess finishing up that pyramid analogy. So you know we have the, that baseline of being vigilant or alert, and then we've got attention is the next level on top of that. And then the level on top of that, I tend to think of as um, all your executive functions, right? So the things that would make you succeed in an, you know, an executive role, right? That allow you to plan, decide to do certain things, decide not to do other things, you know, have good working memory. And above that, on the pyramid, I think of as social cognition. So those are like our ability to get along well with others, empathy, et cetera. And then the top level of the pyramid is, is memory, like learning and memory. And so like in my like analogy or the way I tend to think about these things is we can't get to the top if we didn't cover all the lower levels of the pyramid. And so, mm -hmm. you know, with something like quality of mind or with um, um, the nootropic energy shot, when we're building the stack, we're looking at things that are going to layer each of those, you know, that are going to address each of those levels of the pyramid. So, you know, quite often we'll get feedback from people taking quality of mind that they're, they feel like they're, um, but that social cognition layer of the pyramid is performing better. Mm. Uh, you know, they're getting along better with others. They're not as irritated. Um, quite often we'll, we'll, we'll get feedback from spouses that, you know, that 
their spouse hasn't noticed how much more pleasant they are to be around, um, but they're noticing it. So they want them back on Qualia as an example. <laughs> um, and I know for me, one of the things I noticed early on from um, taking Qualia mind was that when I would drive home in traffic at the end of a work day, I was just way more patient. So again, like, like into that, you know, like you could call that stress resilience, but in a sense, like I was just more patient with other people at the end of my work day and the way the brain works. And this kind of gets into that idea of mental energy is we only have so much mental energy to, to spend over the course of a day. We, I think we replenish the account quite a bit when we get a good night's sleep. Yeah. And what happens is we, we usually have, you know, come close to zeroing out that account by the end of our work day. So when we get home, um, the people that are, you know, at least in theory, the most important to us, right? Our family gets the, the least good version of ourselves because it's the version that has used up a lot of its mental energy. So mm. I know when I build nootropic stacks, that's one of the, the tests. Like how do people do, you know, not just an hour or two after taking it, but how are they doing at the end of their day? Right. Because yeah. that, that's a good tell that you got way higher up the pyramid. And then the memory one, that just takes longer to see, right? Because memory is a long-term process. Working memory is short-term, right? That's part of executive function. Yeah. Working memories are basically our ability to hold something in our brain while we're using it, which is why I think like RAM on a computer is a, a good analogy. Um, and so, you know, you can test that shortly after someone takes a nootropic, but long-term memory just is, you know, a, a lot slower. Um, but like, again, um, you know, the both individually in terms of herbs in you know, our products, but also, um, you know, anecdotal feedback we get from long-term users is that that's an area that they feel gets very well supported. Mm, yeah, because uh, it improves your ability to like bear the straw, so to say, <laughs> so that your Absolutely. like the small things uh, don't become that big of a stressors and therefore you have like, yeah, like more bandwidth to be kind and uh, to be yeah, like more passionate or uh, you know more patient uh, and uh, that sort of thing. So yeah, it's it's a matter of almost yeah like uh, checks and balances. Right. So it becomes like um, so in Why We Were Asleep by Walker. One of his chapters talks about you know how you know how important sleep is to essentially um, restore our emotional resiliency. And you know he goes I think into then some um, work he did and some other research where. Uh, following a night or a few nights of much less sleep, people, um, their emotional response to things that happen around them is much, much greater. It's much more amplified, right? For both negative and positive. And, you know, so we know sleep's super important for keeping that emotional balanced state the next day. Mm -hmm. um, in my experience, if you find a nootropic that works for you, that stack should also do that even if sleep isn't optimized, right? Like it should, like you obviously want to optimize sleep and nootropics, but a good nootropic stack is going to help you be more balanced despite maybe sleep not being in a great place. But that would be a good thing to me that I personally look for. Like, um, and it's not something that I would expect to change over a day, but after a month, six weeks of being on a nootropic, that would be a check-in. Like, huh, am I, is my social cognition, that level of the pyramid working better? And if yeah. it is, then that stack's probably really helping, right? Because it's, and, and where I think it's helping is in that mental energy, right? Because the, the um, 
like to use something or skills higher up the pyramid take more mental energy than skills lower is is fundamentally how it seems to work so if there's a shortage of mental energy the thing that's going to suffer most in my experience is typically going to be the things for that individual that take more mental effort and for some people like social cognition that wouldn't be the case but for quite a few social cognition is what's going to get the short end of the straw when mental energy is already yeah. tapped out yeah yeah that's true uh you you mentioned it briefly beforehand as well like nad and uh that also has a pretty profound effect on like overall uh, energy and just functionality of every process in the body so how does it uh you, you also have like a good NAD product. So how does it relate to, uh, you know, optimizing your brain? So NADs, um, I think of NAD as having three main roles. So one of them is as a redox molecule in making ATP. So we can't make ATP without NAD. Um, the flip side of that coin is we can't make NAD without ATP. Like they're mutually uh, reliant. Yeah. So, um, in the path, there's three different ways to make NAD or three different molecules you can make it from. So pathways, one would be um, NR, NMN, niacinamide. They're all, they all make NAD through something called the salvage pathway. Um, niacin, the flushing B3, makes it through something called the price handler pathway, completely different pathway. And then tryptophan is a third way to make it. And that um, goes through, I think like 11 enzymes and eventually funnels in in the same pathway that the flushing niacin does. So we can make the NAD molecule from any of those ways. And each of those pathways, ATP is used in at least a couple places to make the enzymes work that move the pathway forward. So, you know, like one of the things that I always find fascinating hearing people talk about, you know, boosting NAD is I almost have never heard anyone talk about how important make or having abundant amounts of ATP is to make any of these precursors, um, you know, work well in terms of long-term boosting uh, NAD. Um, And then NAD, like I said, is used as a carrier molecule to make ATP. So they're mutually dependent. So that would be one role, um, ATP. Uh, Another role is that um, NAD can get a phosphorus group added on, NADP is the way it's abbreviated. And that plays a big role in cellular defenses you know, so countering oxidative stress. And then the third thing that NAD does, and this is the thing that was much more recently learned, you know, so it goes back to about 20 years ago, um, is that the NAD molecule almost acts like food. It's consumed by these different pathways. So sirtuins would be one of those. Um, Another one is PARPs, which helped um, repair DNA. And another one is CD38, which is used to um, initiate a lot of our... um, inflammatory processes, which, you know, like you mentioned, inflammation right after exercise is useful. You know, it's, it's the timing of it, right? We don't want lingering inflammation, but an, like inflama- inflammatory burst is often, you know, what helps us then trigger the, you know, the getting tougher cascade. So anyways, that I would say all three of those are like the consumption role of NAD. And so, you know, NAD ends up just being a hub molecule it's, you know, used in these three super important, you know, completely different manners. And so making sure we have enough of it is, you know, in my mind, one of the, you know, like a, a very smart approach to staying healthy. Mm. 
yeah yeah it's true nad is super important and uh yeah like a lot of the like your body also recycles most of the nad that it uh produces during daytime and uh yeah you can already like support uh these uh nad uh effects if you have the you know sufficient uh resources for that recycling and uh, yeah making sure that you get the other like essential nutrients and like energy energy in general yeah so like um so atp i've seen essentially estimates that say um well at any given point in time we have a really small like amount of atp right like it's used ubiquitously but we're constantly using and remaking that molecule so that like Experts have estimated that we make and use our body weight of ATP every day. You know, so crazy, right? Um, with the NAD molecule, we're probably, at least the estimates I've seen, we would probably be using somewhere about, you know, say nine to 10 grams of it a day. Um, but most of that, like you said, it's because it's being recycled. So to me, like a key thing if we're doing NAD boosting strategies is also do things to support that recycling. because um, again, more is not better, right? Like the old niacins, you know, the nicotinic acids, so the flushing niacin, niacinamide, those have been around for decade after decade. And one thing is, you know, very clear with those when you, like, we, we couldn't ha- take nine or 10 grams of those without having huge side effects, right? So, like, more is not better, but a low amount of those, if you're supporting that recycling process, is going to get you a long way. So, like, to me, again, like these NAD boosting strategies. Uh, the precursor molecule is important, but the amount that some people take is probably uh, was de- definitely would be beyond my comfort level to take personally. Like I'm a much bigger fan of you know, taking a, a modest amount and then really doing things to support recycling. So, you know, again, polyphenols tend to be the thing that helps that recycling. Mm. And uh, your energy product, can you talk a little bit about this little quality of life? Yeah. So quality of life is um, like, it's like what we would think of as that is something that like is really focused on both NAD and ATP because we view them as mutually like doing one without the other just to us didn't make sense. So, you know, I would say it's equally strong in both and it's um, you know, maybe in a larger sense, it's just a mitochondrial support product or just mm. isn't the right word, but it's focused on making a much fitter mitochondrial network. You know, so those are processes like mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the equivalent of essentially building bigger and stronger mitochondria within. So I, I don't know, I'm sure you would know this, but in case the audience doesn't, within each cell in the body, we could have anywhere from a hundred to thousands of mitochondria. And so, you know, within each cell, there's this network of mitochondria, right? It's that network that's really important. And the network's constantly reshaping itself. So if we you know, so say for the last six months, all our exercise is focused on, you know, endurance, long distance. And we decide, okay, I'm going to shift gears for the next six months. I'm going to just train with weights and sprint. We would reshape, even though, our, you know, that uh, mitochondrial network would be fit. It would have been fit in a way to, to help us better perform endurance. And if we shift away, that network's going to reshape itself, right? So it's constantly reshaping itself 
to best match ourselves to the, you know, the environment, like our diet, lifestyle, et cetera. And so, you know, really what Eternus was designed to, or I'm sorry, it's called Qualia Life now. What Qualia Life was designed to do was really make sure that that, like all of the important molecules, which ATP and NAD, super important for mitochondria, but um, building you know, like fitter mitochondria, you know, another molecule signal pathway, AMP, AMPK, that that was supported. So um, it was a really cool product to work on and one that um, I, I've had a small pilot group of um, 15 people that I started on Qualia Life and then measured um, 12 biomarkers of healthy aging. Most of them had to do with how the brain works, you know, everything from mm-hmm. the highest um, audible pitch that you can hear, like the highest frequency to reaction times to a whole bunch of things. And while, you know, life wasn't really made as a nootropic stock over the two months, the vast majority of people improved in at least several cognitive areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's because the brain tends to use more energy um, than any other tissue in the in the body, right? So when we're doing a good job supporting mitochondria, the brain, you know, the brain would be one of the tissues that disproportionately benefits. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I saw that uh, this one has uh, N-acetylcysteine. <laughs> so uh, yes, yeah, N-acetylcysteine yeah. is also like good for um, antioxidant defense uh, status because it boosts uh, glutathione. And uh, glutathione is reduces oxidative stress and uh, inflammation. So, like m- m- one of the biggest consumers that depletes NAD is also uh, inflammation. So, if you fix that or you know reduce the load of inflammation in your body, then you will also preserve more uh, NAD, and uh, you will you won't deplete it uh, that fast. Well, and you know we had you had mentioned earlier about the idea of like antioxidants and you know maybe being counterproductive right before exercise and um, specifically to me those are things like your classic antioxidants vitamin C vitamin E that on their own tend to quench free radicals where I think of glutathione as part of our antioxidant defenses so what like what I would look for in research is if um, you know, if someone does strategy X, maybe it's exercise, what happens to antioxidants defenses? So those are like, you know, building glutathione, building the enzymes that glutathione is used in, um, SOD, like there's lots of, uh, you know, like a, at least a subset of the classic antioxidant defenses that our cells will make in response to challenges. So like, to me, the goal is to support those rather than to give direct antioxidants. And so I think of NAC being in, in that category, right? It supports antioxidant defenses where, you know, a, a small amount of vitamin C or vitamin E would, but high doses, you're starting to then have a direct antioxidant effect. And when we do that, our cells don't need to boost their defenses, right? We're doing it for them. So in a sense, we would make them more sedentary is the reason that I think, you know, the, the studies on exercise and the high doses of C and E um, show up the way they have. So like, I guess my, um, you know, my goal when I look at research is to look for things that when, you know, we do them or take them, um, you know, essentially cause our mitochondria to respond in a way that they actually build up stronger antioxidant defenses. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, it's been uh, great talking with you as well. So we'll start uh, wrapping uh, this thing up as well so is there anything that we didn't talk about or that you'd like to add 
No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, we've um, recently at Norhacker, we just launched a new product called Qualia Night. So that's um, like, I, I would say, I think of it as a nootropic for the beginning part of the evening. So, you know, we talked a lot about Qualia Mind and nootropics in general. So those are things to me best taken at the beginning of a day. You know, there are things, um, at least when we designed Qualia Mind, we had an eye towards um, so I guess the way I think of it, when we go from, you know, sleeping to wake, it's really like putting the gas pedal on being alert, right? So we want to be able to transition fast into like that daytime mode. And when darkness comes, when the evening rolls around, it's a completely different, you know, physiology, different pathways in the brain become more prominent. The ones we needed to be alert, you know, we don't need as much. So Qualia Night was designed really as something to help us accelerate into that evening and nighttime period. So, you know, we just launched that, super excited about it. Um, and then we'll be launching uh, like an immunity product in we're at least at this point thinking mid-September. And, um, you know, I'll just take a minute to, to wrap this up. But when I think of the immune system, I think of it exactly the way I think of the brain. So the, like the brain, the reason the brain can do all these things is because, you know, interactions of neurons. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the, my story about the immune system is the immune system's intelligent, just a different kind of intelligence, right? So instead of trying to solve what, you know, I would think of as brain problems, you know, math or language or social, you know, what it's, designed to solve is molecular problems, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, challenge with molecules. And so really the, the immune product that we'll be launching in the next couple of months is something that um, toughens up the immune system and is designed to make it smarter. So, you know, nice. I, I personally was thrilled to take it during our evaluation period and I'm looking forward to taking it once we have it as a product. Nice, yeah, looking forward to it. And, uh... Before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and uh, your work? So um, neurohacker.com. Well, we do have a section on our website um, called Learn, where we have um, links to blogs. I usually, when I write something, I tend to write fairly like long form blogs. But, um, you know, so on all of our products, I've written blogs on, you know, the different things we talked about on NAD. I've written articles on um the consumption uses, so um, so two in CD thirty eight parps. I've written on the, you know the different ways we make it. Um, I wrote a long article on mental energy, uh, a shorter one on the role of mental energy for exercise. So the best place to you know find out more about Neurohacker and you know things that I'm working and writing would be to, um, to check out our website. Nice. Yeah, we're gonna put all the links in the show notes. And my last question is: uh, What's this one piece of advice or habit you wish you adopted sooner? So I would say the biggest thing that if I had to reset everything, it would have been um, exercising less and taking more time between um, things, hmm. both, um, you know, more days off, like more, you know, weeks off. And then um, some studies I saw about three years ago, or maybe it was slightly more than that, but really what they did is, they, they changed the interval of rest between sets of weightlifting. So in one group, they had take about a minute between each repetition or each um, set. And another group, they I want to say in this study, they used five minutes. But what they found is the longer rest, those people had 
better testosterone boost over the next couple of days. And over the duration of the study, they gained more in terms of size of muscle tissue, right? So even though both groups lifted the same amount, that like having that extra space of recovery between each set made a big difference. And the group that they studied, I think would be close to my age. I think they were men in their late fifties. Um, and so at the time that really, I was one of those people that in the gym, I would be 30 seconds between each set, like boom, 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 like in and out. And so I, I looked and I found some other studies that had come to a similar conclusion. So I um, adapted that. I don't usually wait five minutes. I'm, I usually set a timer for three, but it's made a huge difference in, mm. my, um, in my heavy workouts. And, um, and I feel like I had spent decades, you know, putting lots of time in, but had the wrong strategy. Mm. So that would be like the biggest thing that I would do over would be more rest, more rest, you know, um, between sets, more rest, you know, between days and more, you know, weeks through the year where I'm doing some kind of a deloading. Yeah. And at least for me, that's made a huge difference over the last four years. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so like the kind of high intensity mentality, uh, is somewhat, uh, misleading or you think that you, the more effort you put in, the more results you're going to get, but you know, there's a threshold or there's a, like a, yeah, like a ceiling you hit after which more intensity isn't necessarily better. And sometimes, yeah, it's actually better to, you know, pull back a little bit and uh, yeah allow the body to recover because if you're already all, all the time stuck in that you know recovery mode then you won't uh, adapt you won't get uh, better and you won't you know get stronger yeah so i mean i've always been mentally able to you know do right to get yeah. myself like you know up to do things but i i think i hindered a lot of progress i could have made by not focusing as much on recovery so you know i think it's like um, intermittent fasting um would be another thing, especially, you know, the, the, um, like the fasting mimicking diet, um, Walter Longo's work. When I've heard him and some of the other people, um, speak about that at medical conferences, one of the things that like repeatedly sinks in for me is that that time period when you come off the, the five day fast is, you know, super anabolic, right? So it's, mm -hmm. you know, you're getting benefits of autophagy and other things while you're doing the fasting mimicking diet, but you're also getting huge benefits when with the contrast of coming off and refeeding. So, yeah. you know, we need to do, we need to recover from doing. And both to me at this point in my life, I view as equally important. And unfortunately, when I was younger, I was all about just the doing part. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, that's true. And uh, it's also a good uh, point to uh, end the podcast as well. So it was a great talking with you. And uh, yeah, looking forward to your future work and uh, formulations. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me on. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, you too. All right, that's it for this episode. If you want to support us, then leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can also share with a friend. If you want to learn more about the topics that we discussed in this episode, then check out my new book, Stronger by Stress. But on that, thanks for listening to this episode. My name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.